0: Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonson bambra And my name is Svado Ogor. And today we're talking about Ishi the Killer, or Kuroshiya One, which translates directly as Hitman One, Ishii, meaning one in Japanese. It's directed by Takeshi Mika, based on a manga by Hideo Yamamoto, who's uh, also known for the Homoculus manga, which is pretty good. The screenplay is by Sakaichi Saito, and it has a pretty interesting cast. It does. The titular character, is Naomi Amori, is Ichi. But the character you see on the cover of the film, that's uh, the character Kakehara, and he's played by Tadanabu Asano, who has a pretty international career. He's, uh, he's also in the Thor movies, as one of the, like the Thor's um, helpers. He's like the Asian guy.
1: Yeah, and I'd also say he's, he's maybe more of a main character in this movie than, than the yeah. title or Ichi. Yeah. There's more focus on Kakihara.
0: Yeah, he's a very iconic character. Then you have um, Shinji Tsukamoto as Gigi, and he's a director himself. Amazing director with films like Tetsuo Iron Man and Snake of June, Tokyo Fist. He's a great director and so nice to see him in a film here. He's, he's, he's pretty good in this too. Yeah, yeah, he has a surprising turn. And there's Pauline Sun, who also goes by the name Alien Son. Alien Son, my yeah. Alien Son. Yeah, uh, she plays Karen. Yeah, Chinese uh, sex worker. Yeah, and Shushumu terjima plays Suzuki. Shun Suguto plays Takayama. Yun Kinemura, a good friend from audition, plays uh, Funake in this. He's like a gangster boss. Then you have another director. His name is Haruyuki Tanaka. He plays Kaneko. But he typically goes by the name Sabu, at least when he's directing films. He's also kind of a a prize-winning director. And then you have another director who plays, like, twin, I don't know, detective sadist. Yeah, corrupt
1: detectives that are really sadistic and help Kakihara with torturing people.
0: Yeah, so that's played by Suzuki Matsuo. Yeah,
1: they're great. I've seen them in a couple of other things, I think. Yeah. but yeah, this this movie is just filled with directors.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's such a great cast, and it, it works so well. It's like
1: characters are really iconic and striking. Uh, yeah, there's so many memorable performances in this movie, and um, and it's surprising that it, it works so well with so many directors. Yeah. Uh, but also, I assume that he just knows a lot of people in the movie industry. Uh, Takashi Miike, having worked there so long and uh, in various capacities.
0: Yeah, and a lot of them are the kind of. Art house types that also make kind of controversial, extreme cinema. So I guess they're in the same clique uh, or something. Yeah, yeah.
1: this movie is just so it's it's a roller coaster of madness. It's really fun, <laughs> yeah. uh, despite being horrific and unpleasant.
0: So tell us a, a little bit about the plot. How, what
1: happens? The plot is quite convoluted, but essentially. Ichi, he is an assassin, but he's not naturally an assassin. He's sort of being forced to be an assassin by this Gigi character who's doing it for a bit unclear what his motives are, but apparently like money and stuff. So he makes Ichi kill this um, Yakuza boss, boss Anjo. And basically, uh, what ensues is uh, Kakihara, which is a lieutenant in the Yakuza clan. He is sort of trying to find out who made this boss disappear. Because initially, they don't even understand that he's, he has been killed. Mm. Because the scene has been cleaned up by Gigi, who runs this cleaning crew. Essentially, the movie is just about Kakihara trying to find who killed Boss Anjo and getting on the trail of Ichi and then uh, eventually finding him. But one major theme in this movie is uh, sadomasochism. Yeah. And Kokihara is very interested in torture and violence and he feels pleasure by receiving pain. So there's this weird sort of uh, red thread going out throughout the movie about, you know, pleasure, pain, torture, sadism, masochism. And Kakehara seems sort of uh, obsessed about Ichi eventually.
0: Yeah, because his relationship with his boss, uh, boss Anjo, was kind of a mutual sadomasochistic thing where he was like the only person who could hurt Kakehara properly. So when he disappears, he's completely focused on finding this boss. He doesn't believe he's dead initially. And he then kind of projects this wish upon ichi who he doesn't really know what this person is he just knows he does gruesome murders and he kind of wants him to uh yeah basically murder him or, or hurt him uh, well to an he, he doesn't want him to murder him he wants him to sort of
1: take over as this sadistic sort of a master and sort of a master slave relationship mm. of a bdsm relationship but it's clear throughout this movie that he's always hunting for this exquisite pain yeah. this exquisite sort of torture and violence and at the end when he finds ichi uh, he's just incredibly disappointed and that's what leads to in sort of the ending is a bit unclear (laughs) but it's uh, ambiguous (laughs) apparently at first Ichi sort of uh, kills this other Yakuza member that uh, is part of Kokihara's gang and uh, he attacks Kokihara and slices him in the head with his sort of blade that's in the heel of his boot Mm and he sort of topples over a railing and falls down from a building and dies mm. but later you see that he doesn't have a cut in his forehead and apparently yeah. he just made all of this up so what actually happened apparently is that he was just so disappointed finding out that Ichi was this pathetic man-child because he just uh, curls up and cries and he's just not really the perfect sadist that yeah. Kakihara wanted so also
0: he's been shot in the foot
1: <laughs> yeah and he's whining and it's yeah. just it's just so pathetic so apparently Kakihara just fantasizes this ending it, for himself he
0: sticks he has these metal skewers, these long needles, and he sticks them into his ear. To stop the pathetic crying from itchy. Yeah. It breaks his uh, tearing. Yeah, and the image goes all overexposed. And yeah, then I guess that's kind of the fantasy scenario he plays out. Because he's looking for this challenge, his match. That's basically what he wants. and then Because right. they do try to fight a little bit before the guy that Ichi kills, Kaneko, who has his own subplots. Uh, yeah, there's Ichi. this subplot
1: where basically mm. Ichi thinks that he's his brother mm. and also Kaneko's son also appears and, and it just turns into this sad situation for Ichi because he's not 100% sadist, although he's a fucking terrible person. <laughs> he does have some weird emotions too. But uh, a really like important theme in this movie yeah. is fantasy yeah. and like seeking the fantasy and, and living out your fantasy. Mm. And that goes for Ichi as well as Kakiara mm. in different sort of um, modes. But yeah, it, that's the whole movie and and the plot is more convoluted than that because there's lots of twists and turns and sort of a noir.
0: Yeah. I'd say that it has a few main characters and one of the we, we haven't quite touched on yet is uh, Kaneko who's a former policeman who lost his gun and was fired and he was Bullied around a bit and then helped out by one of the people in the Boss Anjo gang. So he was integrated into that society. And he's not like explicitly sadistic like the rest of them. But he's kind of burdened by guilt and a sense of obligation.
1: He's one of the few very relatable characters in this movie. Because he's sort of down on his luck. Mm. He just wants to gain some respect and, and feel like it's worthwhile. But he just continuously managed to fuck things up.
0: Also, doesn't take proper care of his son. No. Who he often leaves, and the first thing we see him, I think he his son calls him up and is crying and is scared. He's being bullied, and you know he just says, "I'm at work." <laughs> There's an interesting dynamic here because his son is being bullied, and uh, Ishi has kind of like a backstory of being bullied. And the son meets up Ishi at some point, and Ishi kind of kicks the son's bullies because they start to bully him. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. to protect this no.
1: young boy. It's, it's more like just to get out of a situation. Mm. Ichi is just a really pathetic character. And it doesn't take much for him to start crying and mm. start whining. And then he lashes out. It often turns into violence for him. That's like right before he starts on a killing spree. He usually is crying and yeah. acting really pathetic.
0: Yeah, Let's talk about some of the characters. um, Kakihara, he's like this super iconic, visually he's really iconic. He has a great look, like yeah. a great aesthetic about him. Yeah. He has
1: these crazy Yakuza outfits yeah. with like leather pants and like shiny shirts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. All sorts of crazy clothes and he has like bleached blonde hair and he has mm-hmm. these weird scars on his
0: face. He has what we call like a, a Glasgow smile, also called a Chelsea smile, I think, which is, you know, you've cut up the sides from the mouth to the cheek, uh, both sides. And he has kind of like a piercing that holds together yeah, at the mouth. edges of the mouth. It's called a Glasgow smile because apparently that's what organized crime used to do in some of these uh, British cities back in the day. Yeah, yeah
1: it's going to be uh, nice for these places to be associated <laughs>
0: yeah. with that type yeah. of thing but anyway he, he has a lot of like passings and stuff there's a general like visual theme of body mutilation and body uh, modification yeah it all
1: ties in with his masochism i mm. think and his sadism he he likes inflicting pain on others too uh, yeah. He he's really into both sides but what he's searching for is, is the person who can give him pain
0: yeah and the funny thing is he he kind of has a theme song or like a melody. It's kind of like a oriental version of any Morricone or something that whenever he he's in there in anticipation of or like in a situation of pain he has this music or we hear this music um that's how I interpret it anyway
1: <laughs> yeah sort of uh this movie is really fun, and it has a lot of mm. like themes and elements, and sound design, and a lot of weird like camera stuff that really adds to the the whole the mishmash. Like it feels so chaotic, but at the same time, yeah. just very fun. Mm. Like a lot of the camera work, it feels very '90s. Like yeah. it, some of it feels like a '90s skate videos or <laughs> yo-yo videos or
0: something. Yeah, they use kind of wide-angle lenses, and they have yeah. like these fast tracking shots. And so. Sometimes
1: there's like a fisheye lens, yeah. and like lots of different fun elements mm. that just. Feels like he's uh, having fun making this movie.
0: Yeah, it's quite playful. Yeah, uh,
1: and it works very well with the themes in the movie and the characters. And he uses a lot of like speeding up the footage, yeah. some slowing down, some overexposure, weird camera angles. Mm. When the camera is sped up, is that like to like sometimes I felt like it was showing one of the characters moving through the city.
0: That's interesting because a bunch of the like choices they make in terms of uh, cinematic choices, there's some ambiguity there because. They have these speeding shots throughout Tokyo, which kind of feels like it could be a character. But it also, I think it's the beginning of the film, the first one we see, it has like bird sounds. And there's a visual motif of birds popping up at certain important points. So I'm not sure if we're meant to interpret that as a bird throughout. Yeah, I think it's
1: open to interpretation. Like the way I viewed it often, I was like, I I felt like maybe it it showed sort of Ichi or the potential of Ichi Mm. moving throughout the city as this sort of unknown entity. Yeah. Another thing about this movie that is just so fucking amazing is all the crazy violence. The, The violence is just so over the top. And sometimes really badly done with, uh, like,
0: CG effects. But it sort of doesn't matter to me. I sort of like it. Yeah. It has this comical, bad CG style, like slicing people in half. And you see, like, they're like Jello almost yeah, the like way they fall down. They
1: yeah. peel to the side, like a cartoon. or It's just crazy.
0: But on the other hand, they have, like, very realistic prosthetics and stuff that looks, you know, really uncomfortable and well-made. Yeah, yeah, like uh, the
1: various torture scenes, yeah. like, with the hooks and the skin and stuff looks great. Yeah. So there's this mix of fantasy and reality, which also mm. ties in with the theme of the movie in a way that mm. sort of makes it work for me anyway.
0: Yeah, of course, when this film came out, as is <laughs> usual, at least at this time with Takashi it was considered by some as misogynist. And one of the things they were talking about is uh, how the violence seems to operate differently towards women and men. The violence towards women is realistic and extremely difficult to watch, while a lot of the violence against men is a lot more comical and playful although I'd say that's not consistent no. and I don't really agree with that point of view but it was one that was talked about at the time. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's just somebody who hasn't watched the movie enough because I think the worst scenes are violence against men and some of the most realistic scenes are violence against men. The scenes against with violence against women are horrific yeah. but it's not like all female characters in this movie have no agency at all. Mm-hmm. Like Karen she's an interesting female character yeah, in absolutely. this movie and yeah. she definitely has agency and mm-hmm. Sort of choose her own path in mm. life. She plays all sides too. She tries to get with Kakehara. She sort of tries to find out what's going on with Ichi.
0: She's an interesting character. She's interesting. There's, I think she's, a, she's from Singapore. Yeah, she's, she's a Singaporean actress. Yeah, she had a modeling career initially and. I think, yeah, she goes by the name Alien son. I think there was a story about when she was a kid, she had a big head, so the other kids called her Alien. So Yeah, <laughs> so.
1: she also represented Miss Universe from Singapore in 1994.
0: She's done a lot of stuff. She talks English quite a lot in this film. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how successful I feel it is. I feel when she's speaking Japanese, it flows much more naturally. She's a bit um, exaggerated in a play in English. Almost show-offy, but that might be a part of the character as uh, well. Again, I feel it works. I feel it could easily
1: not work if it wasn't more like serious or slow paced yeah. movie. But in this sort of context it works for me. But I understand what you mean. It's weird. The English is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And has a clear accent and she's supposed to be from China. So it works for me. Like it works for her character too, because mm. she is sort of she's sort of always playing a part, this character, mm. even mm. though she has multiple facets of her personality. But mm. when she meets people, she's sort of playing a uh, playing a bit part.
0: Yeah, she she's playing part, but he's also being played interestingly by maybe my I can't say favorite character, but he's such a he's such a great character in this movie is GG by Sinji Chukumoto Yeah, so good. Initially, he comes off as this low-level ex-yakuza who's kind of used to be part of that community, but he's kind of pushed to the side a bit. Very low-key character to begin with, seemingly not in the center of things. Yeah, he looks very sort of humble and he wears these baggy clothes and he's hunched over, yeah. and uh, he looks like he looks like a very normal person. He's not flashy initially, <laughs> and his name sort of starts to pop up here and there around the bad things that happen.
1: Yeah, and you sort of intercuts with him interacting with ichi you you see that he's sort of uh caring for ichi or sort of making him do stuff yeah it's not immediately obvious what he's doing no eventually you you learn that he's sort of controlling ichi
0: yeah and that he's manipulating several uh people like pawns around yeah he's he's an intelligent character yeah and when he does have a shift he you know he shows his confident face his demeanor changes completely and it becomes really scary (laughs) yeah he's he's
1: he's (laughs) Probably the most frightening character yeah. in this movie. Towards the end, you sort of he does this reveal oh. where he's fighting one of the yakuza enforcers.
0: It's uh, Takiyama, who's he's the big strong guy. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's yeah. great.
1: He's a real like yakuza character.
0: Yeah, thing. this scene is really fun because he, he's just left because there's a torture scene going on, and though even though he's like the big tough guy, he can't stand that shit, so he, he goes. No, out because he's more of a normal person. Yeah, there's a very comic scene where Gigi, you know, apparently doesn't want to be found, so he kind of hides very kind of uh, playfully, almost like silent movie era gag sort of slapstick so Takeyama runs down the stairs after him and then he turns around and he sees him standing there and his face kind of transforms from like the the humble pathetic guy to this super confident and he takes off his clothes It's so funny and this is just amazingly muscular like bodybuilder yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's so
1: funny. And it's clearly like CG'd on his face to this yeah. bodybuilder. But in the context, it just works really yeah. well. And is one of the best scenes in the movie, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: Apparently in the manga, Gigi is more of a guy in his 30s who abuses steroids. Mm. So that's sort of a... Uh, it makes more sense mm. in the manga. But mm. in the movie, I think it's much more funny because it's this weird reveal. Yeah. Uh, and it makes sense with the character in the movie too. But he's sort of almost mystical in this movie.
0: Yeah, it comes out of the blue. I remember when I first saw this movie like back in the early 2000s that would just seem really stood out because it's kind of shocking and just has this intensity that's uh, really strong yeah but it's um, it's
1: great like the whole last 20 minutes of this movie is just fucking fantastic yeah but really intense and horrific in a lot of ways
0: mm. there's actually quite a few characters that are quite different in the, the manga kakihara himself is more like uh I don't know, he's he's like uh, 30s, late 30s. He's kind of a hairy, not really a stylish character. He's more pathetic. And he wears uh, like this bondage rope underneath his clothes at all times, as far as I understand. I haven't read all of it. I've read some of it. And um, Ishii is also less... Because in, in this film, he's like completely just this man-child-weepy, loser-idiot. And he, he, has, more, he has more kind of like... Um, I'm not sure if I would say intelligent, but but yeah, he, he's, he's different. He's kind of more a, like a developed character, I think, a bit in the comic game.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, the different characters in this movie. One of the things that makes GG so terrifying uh, to me is that almost every character in this movie doesn't really have any agency. They're not really empowered. They're only like being driven by their raw desires mm-hmm. or just drifting about being uh, sort of the victim of others' desires. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw... There was a really interesting episode on this movie by Cinema Nippon on YouTube oh, yeah. called Ichi the Killer and Moral Ambiguity. And they talk about this sort of lack of agency and empowerment with a lot of these characters because it sort of makes it less, um, less misogynistic in a way because these characters aren't really empowered. Like Ichi is a pathetic character. Yeah, yeah. Like nobody would want to be him. And he's just lashing out. And like his psyche is so weird and complex and conflicted that it's hard to sort of wrap your head around. But he's basically
0: been tormented by Gigi. Like, did Gigi kill his parents? There's some ambiguity there in terms of what actually happened. In the film, they kind of have like a fake father-son relationship where Gigi has used some kind of hypnotherapy to manipulate a fake past.
1: Yeah, he plants fake memories of Ichi being bullied. When he was never bullied, apparently. Mm. So he's sort of tormenting Ichi into being this pathetic character.
0: Yeah, and this weapon that he can use. So.
1: Yeah, but that's why Gigi is so terrifying. He's like the only one in, in full control yeah. of his emotions yeah. and uh, and sort of what he wants. And that's just in this movie where everybody is just in this chaos of feeling and desire and just raw energy. He's the only one who's sort of pulling the strings and really master, masterminding the whole thing.
0: But the other reason why he's quite terrifying is that it's very unclear what his goals are. Yeah, yeah. As far as I understand, he has a grudge against the Yakuza gangs and he wants to destroy them. In the manga, there's something to do with... One of the the central places in the film is this uh, apartment complex where a lot of the Yakuza people have their base of operations and stuff. And in the manga, I think that is a place where like 80% of the people are Yakuza people and whoever controls that has a certain amount of power so he has a kind of a a plan to take over that and be like the big man he's not like that in the film at all really it's not explicit at all like Um, there's some hints that he may
1: be in it for the money but that's sort of just an assumption somebody makes. Yeah. Uh,
0: and the interesting thing is that at the very end of the movie, when Kakihara has died, yeah, there's, there's this flashback of Kakihara in like this tiled room in blue light where he's just gaping and his mouth is open. <laughs> it's a horrible CG. Yeah. They're like chains hanging from the wall. I don't understand what that is. Then you go outside and you see like a bird flying past, and Gigi's hanging. From a tree, he's being hung. Yeah. And you see a young man walking. Initially, it kind of looks like Ishii, but turns around, it's another person. And this is...
1: Kaneko's son.
0: Yeah, as a teenager.
1: Ostensibly a revenge for killing his father. Possibly. But he's sort of turning into a new Ishii. Yeah. Apparently, visually, he is. Uh, It's an ambiguous ending, but a really good ending.
0: But, I mean, also, I mean, there's some room to speculate whether or not Gigi takes his own life. I'm not sure. It doesn't really explicitly say... So his motives are, there's a lot of things about this movie that where the director's intentions and the intentions of the characters, they're, they're kind of difficult to grasp. Like, it wouldn't be weird if you watched this movie and you thought that the Kakehara character was Ichi for a, a certain amount of it, because he's featured on the poster. And when they first talk about the character, it kind of feels like they're referring to uh, Kakehara. So there's some ambiguity in terms of identity and in terms of roles. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. there's
1: a certain similarity between Kakehara and Ichi. And that's what drives sort of Kakehara towards Ichi. Mm. The there's this sort of sense of ruthlessness and violence about these characters. But of course, uh, the closer he gets and, and when he ultimately meets him, it's such a huge letdown. But uh, yeah, like there's very little explicit sort of uh, meaning in the movie. Like Takashi isn't very interested in explaining what he wants to sort of <laughs> tell you with this movie. He's just showing you a bunch of really fucked up shit and really interesting characters and sort of dynamics. And you're really up to yourself to sort of interpret the themes and interpret the violence. There's so much violence, but it doesn't really serve any function unless you try to sort of figure it out for yourself. In that sense, it's quite a liberating movie. It really doesn't spoon-feed you anything.
0: But what's also really interesting about it, I think, is that it holds up to a lot of different interpretations. And that you can spend a lot of time filling in the blanks uh, and... There's a really great article written about Takeshi Mika by a guy called Randolph Jordan, which is called Suicide is for the Birds. And he looks at several of his films. I- I'll link it uh, in the description. But I'm just going to cite some of the things that he writes where he talks explicitly about Ishii the Killer. He examines the potential that Ishii doesn't actually exist as a character, that he's a manifestation for three of the other characters. That's Kakihara, Gigi and Kaneko. So he's and like a tulpa. And one of his examples, I'm just going to read this uh, right as he writes it down. At one point in the film, Kaneko befriends Ishii in the streets after scaring off angry pub owner in the midst of administering a beating. While watching this, Kaneko has a flashback to when he was in a similar situation and was saved by a sympathetic gangster. Now a father, the worst thoughts are those that involve his son getting hurt in any way. And Ishii, for a moment, becomes both Kaneko and his son, Poor, defenseless children at the mercy of the irresponsibly powerful. This first meeting between Ishii and Kaneko becomes significant at the end of the film when Ishii kills Kaneko in front of his son. This article takes a pretty close look at several of Mika's films at that point, and specifically in terms of use of birds and rebirth in his films and he he looks at uh, graveyard of honor and happiness of the katakuris which has like this it opens with this scene with a like a animated um, bird creature that gets eaten and then regurgitated and like born again and yeah it has this own evolution i read this back in the day and it really kind of enhanced my perspective of what uh, takashi mika does in terms of uh, like thematically works across it's kind of also based on the the book by Tom called um, Agitator which is a really good if you if you want to learn a lot about Mika's start as a director and quite quite a thorough look at his films up to a certain point that's a good place to start and then supplement it with this Suicide is for the Birds um, it's really interesting yeah so he goes further into this, that Ishii doesn't exist as a character. He has a lot of different theories, but it really shows how the film holds up to like You can examine it in many different ways, I think. Um, yeah, but that's one of the functions
1: of it being such a free-form movie when it comes to the narrative, because there's so little explicit sort of um, motives on behalf of the movie itself sort of feels very free. And it, yeah, it's, it's just really open to a lot of interpretations as far as the plot goes. But I think that's also furthered by the way the movie is made, mm. which really feels free and very playful, mm. despite the horrific themes. It's just really great to think about, and, and it's just really good to rewatch too. I've seen this movie a bunch of times, mm. and it's very valuable every time I watch mm. it. I, f- I feel very rewarded uh, in different senses, because you, s- you sort of focus on different characters when you view it again. This time I was really fascinated by uh, Kaneko. Yeah, uh, as a character because he's sort of uh, in a sense the, the moral fiber of this movie he's, he's well, one of the well he has a lot of flaws like he doesn't take care of his son for instance mm. but it does seem like that's because he's trying to make money and, and earn a living and trying to like uh, gain a professional
0: standing Yeah, because I have a different interpretation of that and the way I see it it's, he's more like driven by obligation and shame and he doesn't stand up for his kid very much but he's very invested in one of the earlier scenes. He's, he's wanting to watch over... Boss and Joe, he, while he's having sex, like really violently treating a prostitute anyway. He, he wants to be, you know, making sure that no one's going to come kill him or anything. And all the other gangsters say, fuck it, the guy's having sex, leave him alone, don't bother. Like, and there's several scenes where he's like, where all the other gangsters, they're kind of like, they run away or they're scared, but he doesn't. He stays there. He's like obligated to this function of being a henchman in a sense. Well, I've, I see it
1: more as his, just his moral obligation to do his duty. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's really important to him, especially when he's lost his job from the mm-hmm. police force. Yeah. I, I think he it, it sort of wants to make up that loss by really fulfilling his duties well. He's one of the few people who's really invested in working with Kakehara to find Ichi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even one of the few people who stands in the same room with Kakehara as Ichi has killed a bunch of <laughs> monsters. Yeah, yeah. And there's just guts and blood everywhere. That scene is really funny, by well, the way.
0: Well, that's what I mean. Like, because he doesn't really seem to have much of a moral compass in a sense. Even like the tough guy, Takayama. When... Well, I'm not
1: saying he has a good moral compass. No. I'm saying he does have a moral code. He does have a sort of sense of duty and fulfillment. That's what I mean by yeah. he's the moral fiber of this movie. He does seem to have mm. a real duty to fulfill. Like all other characters in this movie are just out to sort of get something for themselves.
0: But, but I think it's interesting to see in relation to Takayama who is also the, the guy who, who helped him out uh, when he was being uh, bullied because he lost his job. Yeah. Because he when when Kakihara gets too violent and gory and uh, insane, he just politely says, I'm going to go out and take a smoke. I, I can't watch this. It's too bad. But Kaneko, he sits in the room, typically he sits in the corner, kind of, you know, with guilt or shame across his face, enduring kind of like the situation but never speaking on behalf of any of the victims whether or not they're they're good or bad people really well this is in the yakuza he can't be
1: speaking up for it like you won't make it like you're just gonna yeah but he could gonna leave killed. the room at least i mean he doesn't really have no because it feels it's his duty as yeah. part of his job yeah. but anyway he's an interesting character yeah. and he's the one i've really <laughs> focused on this yeah. viewing because yeah, like on first viewing i think what you're really gonna like pay attention to is Kakihara, yeah. obviously yeah uh, all the crazy oh. torture and violence scenes with him Uh, I think one of my favorite violent scenes with him is when he finally takes off his mouth piercings. Yeah. (laughs) And this guy tries to punch him and it just opens his mouth like uh, Tim Curry's It. Yeah. (laughs) With this big, uh, giant, gaping mouth and just uh, chomps down on this poor guy's hand (laughs) and just rips the flesh (laughs) off. It's so funny.
0: Yeah but the, the thing that's so great about Kakihara as well is that he does not give a shit. No. Not I mean at all. you cannot reach this guy. He's not afraid of like social sanctions. He's not afraid of violence. Like he's thrown out of the yakuza gang, he doesn't give a fuck. He's willing
1: to do anything. Like, at one point, he's being chastised by this other uh, Yakuza boss.
0: Yeah, for torturing another Yakuza boss, whom he had no uh, reason to torture, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just, okay, let's get this over with. Uh, I'm going to restore my honor. So he
0: cuts off his tongue. Yeah, because typically, you like cut off your finger, and they say, you know, cutting off your finger is not going to hold it. So he kind of uh, kneels in front of them. They didn't ask him to do this. (laughs) And he just takes up this long blade and puts on a napkin, and he just cuts off his (laughs) his tongue like a chunk of his tongue in front of them and he hands it to yun yeah and he's just shocked and they're like
1: we didn't fucking ask yeah. for this and then like somebody calls him and he's
0: just oh yeah, yeah. i got some business to attend yeah, to with his... like he's
1: just instantly moving on from that incident yeah. he doesn't care at all
0: yeah not worried about like the pain or the social situation or yeah the and that scene is just and... such a good characterization it mm. says so much about that character mm. it's really really well done mm. and also strikingly made because One of the things I find very interesting about the violence in this film, you know, you have the the comical and the very graphic, but you also have the difference whether or not you're shown things directly or whether the camera cuts away. Because it does both quite uh, a lot. And in this particular scene, uh, you do see the tongue getting sliced, which is quite shocking. And there's a parallel to another really good film by chan Park called Old Boy, where there's also a tongue-cutting scene, but they cut away. They don't actually show the the tongue-cutting. And I remember, because I'd seen Ishii and I saw Old Boy, when they cut away, I just thought... Weak. Yeah. yeah you're not willing to go there. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, but
1: speaking of cut off tongues, um, yeah. uh, this was also in Audition. You have that cut off tongue. like yeah, There's this true. sort of fascination with yeah. these flapping tongues yeah. being cut off. Yeah. And also another uh, sort of uh, element that's reminiscent of another Takashi Miki mm. movie is uh, is the bullying mm. in Visitor mm. Q. You also yeah. have this father who just doesn't really give a shit about yeah. his son being bullied, yeah. apart from... It's a different situation, but he does seem sort of fascinated with dwelling on those scenes of bullying.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, it's worth mentioning. We talked about it before, but Takashimike doesn't write his own scripts. He's usually a director for hire, but he still manages to project a lot of themes and a lot of stylistic choices that run through many of his films. I don't think he rewrites much except, like, in the situations, you know, adapting things when he's filming them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of themes of people like outcasts, people who don't fit well into society, people who roam and looking for something. Yeah,
1: outsiders seeking something. I mean, we discussed this previously with earlier Takashi Miki mm. movies, but he really does seem to have this affinity for outcasts and sort of the weirdos mm. of society. What do you make of Ichi as a character? He's very fascinating and very strange.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking about this when I was watching it now because there's kind of like a character type. It's not very common, but this assassin who cries or the crybaby assassin. You have like Crying Freeman, which is a anime or manga. Maybe this is more typical in like Japanese or Asian, I'm not sure, but you have like this assassin who's really dangerous, but also cries or has like a fragility that's visualized in that kind of sense. And because Ishii here is like he's such a crybaby, and there's a lot of scenes where people are telling him off, and he's instantly hunching over, mumbling and excusing himself. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like he's he's washing some dishes and he doesn't do it right. As a waiter, he's kind of embarrassing the people there, giving them wrong food, and his boss there just tells him to kill himself and all he says is i'm sorry and he hunches over and
1: yeah I think it's definitely a, a sort of, uh, if not a trope, then a, a character that does exist here and there. And um, in my opinion, it's, it sort of ties in with the whole broader character type of the seemingly buffoonish character who's actually a competent uh, warrior or assassin, yeah. like the sort of drunken samurai who's actually really good at fighting, <laughs> yeah. or or this sort of a bumbling idiot that has a, an annoying sense of making jokes or whatever, but is still like really good with shoot. Like Vash the Stampede from Trigon comes to mind as this. seemingly idiotic character that's actually really dangerous
0: yeah because he has this red trench coat doesn't he yeah and kind of like a flashy style and he seems like a goof yeah and then he's he's a real
1: goofball but sometimes when push comes to shove he's like this really serious deadly dangerous person it's an interesting character type in my opinion you have these really conflicting ideals in this character Mm-hmm but ichi is even more weird to me than yeah, that because yeah. he he has this sense of being forced into this role mm. and it's unclear whether he's an actual sadist from nature's side or if that's something that's
0: he's been pushed into by this uh, fucked up gigi character like the main motivational drive for ichi is this scenes from when he's young that Gigi has kind of implanted in his like false memories where he sees his female teacher who tried to stop bullies and then the bullies turned on her and they raped her and he was watching it but while he was watching it he was also sexually aroused and wanted to rape her as well so he has kind of like this conflicting thing because it turns out that this is fake it's also filmed in like this you know overexposed those scenes just feel really off yeah visually but he it's clear that he
1: is a sexual sadist. And in my opinion, I don't think... Like, I think Gigi exploits him, but I think that he is an actual fucked up person, regardless of Gigi's sort of machinations. And well, we don't really know anything about him no, we don't Gigi. know. This yeah. is just my interpretation yeah. 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 of it. Yeah. Um,
0: well, that's my point. Like, he's kind of a blank canvas, kind of empty at the end when we learn that we don't know anything about his motivation or his drive or anything. He's just like this tool in a way.
1: Yeah, and I really like that. It's, again, Takashi Mika just sort of making us responsible for deciphering this stuff. He leaves it up to you as a viewer, and that can be really disturbing. Because you don't have this sort of catharsis at the end. You don't have this sort of resolution tying stuff up in a way that would make sense to a person that's not a sexual sadist. <laughs> it's fascinating yeah. the way he does this. And it should, as a character, is just both such a non-entity in terms of mm-hmm. his personality, but also this enigma of why he is acting the way he is. What yeah. he does, what he does.
0: And he's kind of like really annoying. And he's so insane as well. Like there's this scene... Like The Karen character, she kind of approaches him and pretends to be the teacher that was raped from his background as a way to being manipulated by Gigi. Get some information or it's a bit unclear. Yeah, it's unclear. Gigi is manipulating her into it anyway. And there's also like a short flashback where she also shares this memory. So whether or not she's somehow involved in like this fake... I don't know, it's weird.
1: But or Gigi is manipulating her too. Like he does yeah. seem to have a lot of power over people. Yeah,
0: she actually asks him explicitly, are you uh, putting memories in my head as well? And he, he just very like poker-faced says uh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Though not as believably, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so she's, she's tricked Ichi into thinking that she's this teacher and that she kind of wanted him to rape her. There's something about Ichi's sexuality that Gigi... Seems to. He tells Karen that he gets erections but can't ejaculate, which doesn't seem to be the case in the film at all. No, he
1: ejaculates quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like there's some scenes where it just comes spurting on walls yeah. in, in the midst of these horrific actions. It's yeah, funny. dripping.
0: I think the first thing we actually see of Ishii is also just dripping seam. Yeah, it,
1: it's just, it's really, it's kind of nasty. Yeah, really, really nasty. funny.
0: So they engage sexually. She's giving him a blowjob. And then Ishii starts to, you know, Spazz out like mentally and he starts yeah you want it because you don't want it and uh, that sort of stuff and he decides that he should kill her because she doesn't want to kill her but that means that she wants him to kill her so yeah he does and the way his face changes when she's blowing him and he's kind of has this revelation it goes from this kind of stupid crybaby to this like insane twisted grimace it's, yeah, it's really sort weird. Of
1: euphoric like it's one of the things that makes his character visually interesting is that when he smiles, yeah. he doesn't smile like a human being. No, no, no. <laughs> he smiles like in this terrified grin, and yeah. it's horrible to see, and it's so funny, so well-played by yeah. the actor.
0: It's almost as if he doesn't really know how to smile, He doesn't know joy, and he just kind right. of... He has some kind of uneasy
1: expression. But that's one of the things that actually make me think he is an actual sociopath. Yeah. Um, it's quite common for serial killers, for instance, to not necessarily start killing randomly like they will sometimes just require Sort of this jumping through some mental hoops yeah. to get it started. Like you say, like well, well, if I get fired from my job, then I'll start killing or whatever. Okay. And I feel like the way Gigi is manipulating yeah. uh, Ichi sort of feels like that. He's yeah, sort of yeah, yeah, giving yeah. him permission yeah. to give in to these torturous desires of him.
0: Mm. Yeah, and often triggered by this idea of bullying. Like these are maybe not your bullies specifically, but they're the same or they're worse, and they're yeah. bullying others, and you have to stop them. And the yeah, only he, way to he's stop so, them... sort of allowing him to get
1: into this mind space where killing is not just okay but it's actually good yeah you're doing something good even though i think itchy deep down knows it's bad Mm. he just doesn't really seem to care about people's feelings Mm. and he seems to trick himself into thinking that people want to be killed like he imagines that karen for instance wants to be chopped up into pieces
0: But he's also like obviously conflicted. Like when he kills Boss Anjo, he just comes in and he starts to cry and he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, this sadistic asshole, Yakuza Boss, is just, what the fuck are you doing here? Get the fuck out. I'm going to kick your ass. He's just really aggressive. And he's just standing there whimpering saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And like two seconds later, he sliced him in two. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and Boss Anjo falls it's to
1: bits. Just a great sequence.
0: And then he approaches the prostitute that Boss Anjo was beating viciously. And says he's going to replace Boss Anjo and beat her instead of Boss And Right. That shows,
1: again, why I think he's a sociopath. Like, he doesn't react normally to people's emotions. And that's why the whole crying thing for me also is weird. I don't Mm. think he shows human emotions. Like, his emotions are just really weird. Mm. Which is why his character is fascinating. Mm. Because he doesn't react in a way that normal humans would react. You're always watching to see what will happen next. Because he's so unpredictable.
0: And he's genuinely conflicted when it comes to Kaneko because he's been told by Gigi that it's his long-lost brother. And Kaneko treats him
1: really nice. He treats him to some food and yeah. likes, tries to help him. And, and he's, he's one of the only people who shows some yeah. concern towards Gigi. Again, because it reminds him of himself and yeah. it reminds
0: him of his son. And he also explicitly says, I'm not bullying you. I'm just trying to help you. Like when he asks him about questions and stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and there's a scene where the actor who plays his son is in Nichi's clothes and standing mm. before him. It's really clear that Kaneko equivocates these two characters. Mm. I will just say that another thing that makes Ichi really just adds this extra layer of surreal weirdness to his character is yeah. the fact that he's wearing this sort of superhero costume <laughs> yeah. and has this, like his weapons are like these blades that are in the heels of his boots. And actually, he's, he's sort of a parody of a famous Japanese superhero character called the Kumen Rider, which has also been parodied many times. He's a really famous Japanese superhero
0: is he like a kids Power Rangers style, uh, like guy in costume fighting monsters type? Yeah.
1: As far as I know, I haven't actually seen any mm. Kamen Rider, but as far as I've read, he's, he has a motorbike and he fights crime and stuff.
0: But he has like he has like this costume. He very,
1: yeah, he has a very iconic costume, and it does remind you of Ichis costume. It's sort of loosely based on that. As far as I know, have you have you seen One Punch Man? Bits of it. It's a really funny anime, anyway, yeah. and one of the characters there is also a parody of Kamen Rider, uh. and basically. He's a superhero, but he's just a normal guy. He doesn't have any superpowers. And instead of a motorbike, he just has a bicycle. <laughs> <So> he just <laughs> okay. rides around. And he's just always late to the battle. But he's like, he's a really good guy. Okay, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's a really good parody. But yeah, that just adds this extra layer of insanity on top of this character. It's just...
0: If this Kuman, a guy, he has like an insect's... Like yeah, it looks helmets? like an insect.
1: He does look like a Power Rangers character, and Power Rangers was, of course, also originally from Japan. It's yeah. sort of weird Japanese superhero, uh,
0: like these daytime kids shows from Japan from like eighties, nineties.
1: Yeah, it looks super cheap. Looks super like crazy to yeah, probably a Western mindset.
0: But they're uh, kind of cool. They have like this really playful, like epic thing going on with yeah, the, like, martial I, arts. I, and... I love
1: that type of shit when I was a kid. Like, mm. it's super fascinating. Yeah. Um,
0: Often very like colorful and, and playful. Yeah,
1: super colorful. Super like everybody has weird costumes and stuff.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I had no idea that Ishii was uh, inspired or based on this. Uh...
1: Yeah, but that was from the manga. So yeah. That that wasn't something Takashi Mika no, yeah, yeah. necessarily explicitly did something with. But mm-hmm. the way his fighting style and all, all this mm. like this crazy acrobatics and martial arts stuff, yeah. it does tie into the whole sort of parody of being this superhero mode. He's not a superhero, of course. He's a super assassin, but yeah. the the sort of mode is still the same. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, because he has this really weird weapon, which is basically just a blade on his heel. That's the only weapon he uses, and he just kind of kicks people with the back of his heel, and they slice up, their cuts their arteries or slice them into... two. Or yeah, he
1: only fights with his uh, legs, like yeah. his feet. He kicks and or he slices with his heel.
0: Uh-huh. I love the scene at the end when Kakehara and Ishii are kind of fighting and uh, Kakehara is filled with all this anticipation. He's been going all the film and just waiting to find like this challenge. And he's like, oh, oh my, I'm I'm scared now. Oh, this is great. And then uh, he's finally feeling something. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he's so disappointed when uh, Ishii is uh, shot in the leg and huddling and crying. Yeah, you,
1: you feel kind of bad for Kakihara, <laughs> even though he's this crazy person.
0: That's because he's... he He
1: just, he doesn't feel anything. You yeah. feel this lack of... He's always searching for something to fill the void of nothingness. Like, that's that's the way I view it. And even though he's a horrible character, he, he's not just being... He doesn't torture people or being horrible to people, like, for no reason. Like, the people (laughs) he hurts uh, in the movie are to find uh, his boss or the killer of his boss. He does, of course, engage in torture and stuff and sadomasochism with willing participants. Mm. Like, when he tries to do it with Karen, which is funny because he doesn't feel the sort of validity of of her violence. Yeah, she's punching
0: him and he just says... Do it harder, do it uh, more honestly, and be be more aggressive. And then he just says, I'm disappointed in you. This is not working out.
1: Yeah, it's a sad scene. And uh, right before uh, the scene where he sort of engulfs this poor guy's hand mm. with his mouth, he's like goading him into punching him in the face. And he just says eventually, like, there's no love in your violence. Yeah. <laughs> there's no love in your punches. And that's when he decides to sort of bite his hand. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of poetic and nice.
0: I don't know. Uh, he's so... And a lot of the most iconic scenes center around Kakehara. For example, when he's um, torturing, I think it's Suzuki, this guy who they think might have some information of Boss Anjo. And they just find him and they put these meat hooks in his back and hanging from the ceiling. And this guy who doesn't know anything about what's going on. No, he's literally innocent in this scenario. (laughs) And uh, he's probably, if not superior, then equal to Kakehara in the hierarchy of the Yakuza. But belonging to like a different part of it. From a different clan. Yeah. But under the same kind of umbrella, I think. Because they have like a...
1: They have a syndicate or they have a sort of a connection between these Yakuza clans.
0: Yeah. And the way he's torturing this guy with, like, hot water in the face. Uh... Oh, he's
1: pouring hot oil because yeah. he's uh, making tempura shrimp. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the way he's just nonchalantly making shrimp and then pouring the oil over him. Like, Tadunobu Asano is just a great performance in this movie. Really wonderful. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. no wonder why he's being used as a sort of visual selling point for this movie. Because he's just really memorable in the way he acts and the way he
0: looks. It's really iconic. It's great. And it's so funny when I realized it was not the, the Marvel films because he's kind of a, there's nothing wrong with that role, but he's a bit of a non-entity and he's such a presence here. Yeah. I'd love to see more stuff by him where he, he gets to chew the scenery or take a lot of space. Yeah, uh,
1: give him some more like Nicolas Cage-like uh, <laughs> roles. But yeah, he, he has been in a lot of stuff yeah, though. Yeah, so, he has, he has. Uh, he's been in like Scorsese movies and mm. he's yeah. like a lot of Western stuff actually. Yeah, so.
0: yeah. It's not as if he's underutilized. No, and, and, but I
1: love him in this movie. Yeah. He's just perfect for this mm. role. But yeah, I really like the sort of irreverent feeling of this movie. It just feels really like he's doing whatever he can and doing it in a way that he finds interesting. And I read an interview with him in the AV club where he talks about what he feels about skillfulness when it comes to making movies mm. and it doesn't feel like it's important to be really skillful like I assume in the technical aspects mm-hmm. of movie making I, I think he views it as something his ideal is to have a he says I want it to be sort of raw and rough but new and fun to watch like he does seem to seek this intangible sort of rawness and energy in his movies which is why even in Visitor Q that is such a low budget movie mm. he, he does manage to achieve it by almost sheer force of will and skill but he doesn't really use a lot of fancy equipment to do it he doesn't need it he, he has this real skill in the sense that he's really good at directing people he's really good at selecting scenes he's really like he's, he's really skillful in what he does but not in the traditional polished way that you might see in you know, yeah. bigger productions
0: and i think that particularly in the films that we have discussed which is some of his central his films that he He's very conceptually strong. So the idea base that he's working with, the way he develops them and visualizes them and how that affects us as viewers, those things are extremely well done. They're really effective and they're kind of disarming and you know, unpleasant but playful at the same time. He right. works on many levels in a way that not a lot of people manage as well, I think. No, and considering Talonomo uh, Asano,
1: When he's in these Marvel movies, like, these are really skillful movies, like, very technical good, uh, technically extremely well Mm. done, uh, and a huge budget Mm. and everything. But it doesn't have the same sort of, (laughs) doesn't have anything near the same energy and vibe as a Takashi Miike movie does. Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, It's just a
0: huge contrast. But, you know, I think when it talks about skill and stuff, you have to remember that Mika, he has this journeyman background where he just worked a lot in television and done a lot of films where, like, the idea of being a talent or being like a skilled person, it wasn't really relevant. You're just working your ass off. Because he does have a lot of skill. He's he's a really good director. And he has a lot of these formally very precise... Like, the way he works with a lot of hard cuts in Ishii the Killer, he uses, like, this uh, these really expressive scenes. For example, at one point, they have this Chinese pimp who they're um, trying to get information out of about Ichi. Of course, this guy doesn't know much, but that doesn't mean anything. So they're torturing him, and he has these... Um, these long needles, these skewers that he's kind of sticking in his face and this scene has these really hard expressive cuts it's almost like a choreography it has like this uh, dance feel to it the way just uh, rhythmically works with tension in this yeah scene. there's a really
1: good flow to it uh, yeah. another scene that I find really interesting just from a creative standpoint mm. is when I think Takayama uh, when he meets Gigi mm. and uh, Gigi breaks his neck yeah the camera does this hard pan yeah. like just to sort of simulate his head moving yeah, yeah, and, it, yeah. and it stops abruptly yeah. and with the neck cracking sound it's just really funny the way it's done, but yeah, he's not like he's not a classically trained movie maker, mm. but he reminds me a lot of um, Butch Vig, actually, who is a record producer okay. and also the drummer for Garbage. Oh, yeah. And he's produced, like, Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and a lot of, like, huge uh, mm. selling acts. But he, he was he was just self-taught, much like Tokashi Mika. And he just started from the ground up, just doing stuff. Just constantly producing stuff, like mm. punk shit, all the time. And just gradually, just building and building and building, like, from pure experience. And learning from people who's doing it. And you become... Like, he's a great producer. And I think just through the sort of the live fire of having to constantly produce work, you learn what works and what doesn't. And you learn which rules you can break and what you can't break. And you sort of, you learn how irreverent you can be.
0: Well, some people do at least. I mean, there is some underlying talent as well as the experience. I yeah,
1: I think I think talent's the X factor because there are numerous... Producers and directors who just constantly produce shit Mm -hmm. and never move beyond that point. Yeah, hardworking people. And they made really, really good stuff. It takes a correct mentality. And Takashi Mika really does have that mentality of being willing to try new stuff. Mm. But having this
0: background of having tried a lot of conventional stuff too. I think I just also like the playfulness of his You know, one of the things that I've really become aware of when watching these films again is his use of sound effects, because he uses these really comically fun weird, but also disgusting, often in terms of body fluids or some happening. It's almost, it's this goofy use of sound effects, which (laughs) I really quite like. And, you know, most people would shy away from that stuff. But seeing as he's, you know, completely Genre agnostic, and he doesn't take himself too seriously. He allows himself to use that kind of a tool, which a lot of people would find out of place. I mean, I talked about it in the edition one. I think there's a place where he uses it out of place there a little bit uh, with a character that falls down a stairwell. Yeah, yeah. you didn't like that. But most of the time, I think it works really well. And in this film, it just really accentuates.
1: To me, it accentuates the fun of it. Like, I think this is a really fun movie, and mm. I think it's a really funny movie. Like, yeah, there are yeah. some scenes that really make me laugh. Like, yeah. uh, you, you have these sadistic detectives that do freelance torturing on the side. Yeah. <laughs> and Jiro is killed by Ichi, uh, which is one of those detectives. Yeah. And his brother, Saburo, is like, oh, my brother just died. Mm. I felt that when uh, my other brother died earlier sometime, yeah. so I know that feeling. And he's just so casual about yeah. it. <laughs> And it's like this is weird. And suddenly, like this psychic connection, like it—it's not really explained at all. It's just such a funny little scene.
0: And yeah, and when they find him as well, the body, he says, um, I kind of wanted to kill him. But he's not aggressive about it. And they're very playful. And they have great chemistry when they're alive. Yeah. So he's, there's no, like, underlying aggression that we see. And, and when he dies, yeah. uh, Saburo, Ichi's killing him. Like, you see, like, blood
1: spurting. And, like, sperm mm. is, uh, like, coming yeah. spurting on the walls. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and it's so funny.
0: But yeah, he's the fun brother as well. Because when they're torturing a Chinese prostitute... The one brother, he he's using a lot of like violent stuff, and they have this infamous nipple-cutting scene, which is really intensely made. The camera cuts away. You hear their slicing razor on the metal table as it glides along towards the nipple that's held in a clamp. It's sort of striking and uncomfortable. Anyway, this f- fails because oh, she doesn't know anything. But then the other brother, Saburo, he puts on this dog ears and he says it's time for Sleuth Hound Saburo. And he goes over and sniffs her crotch and then like apparently has Ishi's scent or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and- <laughs> it's just absolutely insane. <laughs> It's so weird. Yeah, this this movie is just
1: full of details like that. Like mm. little absurd details that really make it a lot more interesting that like you could make this probably a more traditional yakuza film, mm. but it's just it's not. It's the it's the weirdest mm. film.
0: Yeah. yeah. He's made a lot of these non-traditional yakuza films with like sci-fi elements or, you know, surrealistic things coming in. Yeah, it it
1: works. Perfectly for this movie. it mm,
0: so. Does yeah, it's it's the one that he really got huge attention for and became like a a name name in the film industry.
1: Yeah, well uh, deserved, I'd say. It's yeah. such a such a great movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy it. I have to say.
1: Um, yeah, thumbs up.
0: <laughs> Four thumbs up.
1: Four thumbs and a chopped off tongue. <laughs>
0: You have a unpleasant recommendation for us today.
1: I do. So, today I wanted to recommend a South Korean movie. It's called A Hard Day. The original title in Korean is something like Ketkai Ganda or something like that. Which means more like take it to the end. I think the title is kind of a bad title, but mm. the movie is really good. Mm. Like the translated title isn't very good in my opinion. Mm. But yeah, it, it's a sort of a thriller. And it's very intense. And it's sort of about this cop who is uh, he's driving, and he hits a homeless person and mm. kills him. And it sort of evolves from there into a very, very unpleasant scenario. I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but uh, it's really well done. It's directed by Kim Sung-hun. He's the same guy who's directed uh, Kingdom, uh, the Netflix series.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a really, really well-crafted Korean thriller. Probably among my top five South Korean thrillers. That's and high praise from you. Yeah, that is. I'm, I'm really into that stuff, so... That's my recommendation. Check it out. Really intense, really unpleasant, like a really well-done thriller.
0: What would you say is it like a defining feature? What's like something that makes this different from other things, would you say?
1: Well, it's a sort of unpleasantness where you don't really know, or you sort of, you know, well, it's hard to say without spoiling the <laughs> yeah. plot. So so I, I won't say too much about it. Just, just fucking watch it. It's great. It has two thumbs up and three chopped off tongues for me. <laughs> nice. so, do you have any recommendations?
0: I do, I do. It's um I guess it's kind of a opinion piece or an essay. I felt it was kind of a, a tough thing to read. It's called We Don't Know How to Warn You Any Harder, America Is Dying. It's written by Ume Haq. And he's writing from the perspective of people who come from authoritarian regimes, who have experienced countries where It's gone from uh, you know more or less stable society and turned into like these authoritarian tyrannies. And he's talking about the kind of experiences they have there and what's happening in America now. And he's basically saying there's a one-to-one similarity in terms of how society changes. And he's pointing out specific things that's been going on you know lately, but specifically the last year that are red flags high up in the air. This is very very scary and you should be paying attention Uh, one of the examples he's talking about is how you start having police that don't wear any badges and they start kidnapping people and there's no consequences which has happened in america concerning the protests and stuff they kidnap people they drive around in cars interrogate them and they drop them off yeah he just goes into like very specific things that have happened lately and tells about you know how he's seen this stuff before It's so easy to look at what's happening as as kind of like uh, specific to this situation or whatever, but... He's seeing it in a broader context, and it's, it's just very unsettling. And um, I think it's an important read, because this shows how, you know, when I read this, I started thinking, I get it. I can see how Germany turned into a dictatorship. I can see parallels to what's going on in America. And it's fucking scary. Yeah, it's yeah certainly.
1: Like, it reminds me of uh, Noam Chomsky's views on this. He also tends to draw a lot of historical parallels. But discussing the modern state of America, he is just deeply critical. Yeah. And uh, yeah. really, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, uh, ringing the alarm bell that people need to wake the fuck up yeah. and realize the steps that are being taken in um, a very nefarious direction, mm. especially, you know, with uh, one party essentially taking over the, the Senate and the Congress and uh, sort of uh, making uh, new legislation impossible. It's just so
0: undemocratic.
1: Mm. It's so undemocratic. Mm.
0: You know, a lot of these things have have kind of been popping up, but I think especially around how it's been so clear lately in terms of the police and where their allegiance lies, where they kind of consider themselves separate from civilians. You know, there's this rhetoric that apparently they get taught very specifically when they are recruited that, you know, society has three parts. You have the sheep those are civilians you have the wolves which are the criminals and then you have the sheep dogs who are protecting the sheep but they're not part of the sheep and also you can't trust sheep because they may be uh, you know wolves in sheep clothing right, right. and it's okay to hurt sheep to protect sheep and it just talks a lot about like the mentality of that considering yourself above better more important and somehow still responsible in a way when you're you know transgressing in ways that you should not be but you have a way to dehumanize other people, and you say "fuck it," they're just chinks or whatever. Yeah, right,
1: it's... but but police doesn't operate in a vacuum. They are, they have uh, people they answer to, and they have. There is policies in place, or there is the possibility of making restrictions and controlling this. But absolutely, there is no political will to do that, or or political power to do that mm. for people who are interested in doing that. Mm. So there's this whole enormous clusterfuck of things happening that are making things really difficult and moving things in a really nefarious direction.
0: Mm. I, I saw this YouTube clip about a, f- a former um, cop who comes off as a pretty empathetic type and he talks about like the years he spent working as a cop and how he was taught to dehumanize and he speaks very frankly about how he feels personally responsible for ruining other people's lives just by, you know, putting them in economic situations where they just can't get out of, punishing them a lot harder than what's strictly necessary. And he, he talks about how the functions... From the training and like socially between police individual people are responsible but also it's a systematic thing that has a function that protects certain people from other people in society
1: oh absolutely and, and when police can operate without there being any any sort of repercussions mm. when you do something wrong yeah. and stuff is just continually being covered up mm. and people are making sure that their own sort of class of people are okay but they don't give a shit about others
0: mm. Or actively suppress others.
1: Yeah, right. And when you sort of have police investigating police, the result is uh, generally going to be the same. Yeah. Um, it might be put on paid leave or whatever, but seldom is anybody ever convicted of murdering, for instance, uh, while wearing a badge. So
0: Yeah. And they seem to think it's inconceivable that anyone should, no matter what they do. Right. Which is scary. It is scary. I mean, they're told to be really afraid.
1: There is a culture, too. It's not just individual police officers. And a lot of people have to sort of deal with uh, the pressures of of their police department or whatever. There's a lot of good people who are police officers, but the general mentality of covering your own asses and never having any repercussions and stuff, it's just really toxic.
0: Yeah. You you had this metaphor that we're using, like the one bad apple. But I don't think that the apples are bad. I think the casket is bad. Yeah. And, you know, there may be bad apples as well, (laughs) but... uh, but definitely there's something wrong with their yeah, the system. I would say it's like, because
1: you, you you can't have a bad apple with other healthy apples. They'll all spoil. But it's more like leaving your apples uh, in, in a really hot room. They won't last. They'll all spoil eventually. Mm-hmm. Like you, you need to control the climate of these, mm-hmm. these apples. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: that's true. Yeah. Let's make it better for apples to be healthy. Apples are people too. Apples are people too. Yeah, they are.
0: So anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com, or you can check out our Instagram where we post some artwork and we also do like a daily quiz where we publish a still from a film, a mystery still if you like, and uh, you can guess what film it is. Uh, There's quite a bit of activity there actually. We've had some some nice uh, stuff going on. Anyway, the music for this episode is by... Umulium, That's uh, Sverre Ogor and you, scanning. My name is Thomas Simonsen, Balmbra, and um, that's it for now.
1: Yeah, we'll see you next time, folks.
0: Yeah, and yeah, next time we're we're watching. It'll be our last episode on Takashi Mika for now. We're watching Imprint, uh, the Masters of Horror episode he did, which was not aired, but also the box. Which is uh, his segment in the Three Extremes um, anthology. So two shorter Mika that are also like known as their extreme.
1: Yeah. yeah, they have an interesting history being too shocking to actually be uh, distributed. So they are certainly quite horrific and can't wait to see them again.
0: So bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>